CLS is the weighing machine was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, your hosts, Rusty Vanneman and I, Robin Murray, cut through the market clamor to find the time-tested principles that help investors succeed. CLS is the weighing machine is inspired by two ideas. The first is the classic investing truism attributed to Benjamin Graham, that the stock market is a voting machine in the short run and a weighing machine in the long run. In other words, emotion drives short-term market movement, but fundamentals and valuations drive returns over time. The second idea is CLS's investment methodology of risk budgeting. Represented by the scales, risk budgeting measures and manages risk to suit the needs of each investor. Welcome to CLS's The Weighing Machine. We hope you enjoy it. And as always, please let us know what you think. On the podcast today, we'll look back at a volatile month and the lessons we can learn from it, plus some tweet-sized answers to your top questions. We will also discuss Warren Buffett, who just turned 89 years old. Has the investing legend peaked? And we'll also spotlight our head of sales, Bruce Bischoff. Plus, my interview is with Bruce Bischoff, who's the executive (laughs) vice president and head of sales at CLS Investments. Welcome to CLS's The Weighing Machine. I'm Rusty Vanneman. And I'm Robin Murray. Okay, let's start with a look at the markets. How did August end up? Well, when you say end up, the last week was really great for the markets, but August was down. um, uh, And globally diversified portfolios were basically down a little bit more in the sense that international markets were down a little bit more than the U.S. Uh, Real assets such as commodities were down. However, the bond market had an incredibly positive month. Real estate investment trusted well. Um, so, But you know what? August is typically one of the weaker months of the year. About the only month that tends to be weaker is September, which we're coming into. Okay. Well, let's bring in our guest, Chief Investment Strategist, Mark Pfeffer, calling in from New York. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks, Robin. Great to be here. So the markets have quieted, as Rusty said, after a very volatile month. But let's do a quick review of the Federal Reserve's moves, the tariff talk, and all of the Trump tweets that prompted some of the volatility. Absolutely. So the most, the, one of the most important things that happened last month is for the first time since uh, in over a decade, the Federal Reserve cut rates at its last meeting. And the market is forecasting at least 100% chance of one to two cuts this year. And when I say at least 100% chance, there's actually a one in four chance of a 50 basis point cut at its upcoming meeting in September. I don't think it's highly likely, but that's what's uh, happening right now. Fed comments and economic data support those odds. Um, when you look at various indicators, including falling short-term interest rates and wage growth, they suggest inflation is actually starting to grind a little bit higher. And when you look at the inverted yield curve, when I say inverted, it's only really been a couple basis points, that is casting a shadow on stocks and investors fear, as it has happened before, that it could signal an imminent recession. At CLS, though, we're not dismissing this warning but we, uh, because we know it's not infallible, but we do not put a high probability on it right now. And in terms of Trump, his tweets, China's retaliations definitely moved the markets more than anything else last week. On the positive note, as we saw the, the week before, it was negative. So the government's, the Chinese government's comments suggesting that it's open negotiations helped to raise some of August's losses. And then when you look at a day like today, it, it, it goes back the other way. So I think we're going to be in this seesaw type of environment for a while. And until something's resolved, you know, volatility should be the name of the game. All right. Well, Alec Liu, investment research analyst here at CLS, um, wrote a section in the Weekly Three from a couple weeks back. And this is at the time when China's retaliatory tariffs had prompted 
basically a broad sell-off. And then markets bounced back after um, President Trump had a conciliatory response at the G7 conference. So it's basically, as you mentioned as well, it's just market whiplash, and there's not a lot of lag time between the policy and the market response. And Alec wrote some interesting stuff on this, um, and, and he said that he hopes that this is not the new norm. So is it? I think it is the new norm. Right now, the Trump tariffs and anything related to that seem to move the market more than almost anything else. Even looking at this morning, you had some weak economic data, but the market was coming in negative more again about what the expectations are as the tariffs actually start to now kick in. Investors also are expecting more perfect information, which they're not going to get. And there's so many pundits and leaders who move markets every time they speak publicly, but nothing moves it like Trump does. And in the past, it was limited to single stock names like Tesla, et cetera, but now it's expanded, expanded to the broader market. It is, however, you know, as we know, it is now the information age, and everyone wants everything and instant gratitude and information everyone wants immediately. So how should investors avoid that trap? Alec basically said that, um, you know, people, because it is the information age, people think that they, there's so much information out there, they're expecting it to be perfect, and so they're they're reacting to everything that they find out. Isn't it better to be informed, though? Absolutely. It's definitely better to be informed. But we think that a lot of this is noise, and you just have to be willing to wait to see how things are. We always advise clients to take a longer-term view and we've seen this before. We've seen it with Brexit. We've seen it with a whole bunch of other investment um, in, uh, things that happen in the market where we've seen volatility occur. Even the government shutdown or potential shutdown from years ago, which we've seen several times happen. Just look at it as, as noise and just know if you're long-term investing, you know, to not make sudden jolts or decisions that can impact your portfolio. Because generally speaking, it doesn't help investors. So if a trade policy in tweet is out there, uh, you know, we just tell people just look at it as noise, good or bad. Right now, the information we know is not perfect, and we don't think it's helpful to just follow that short-term information because, as we've seen before, it's not always perfect, and it's not quite frankly, it's not always accurate. So, investors should be making more long-term investing decisions. All right. Well, there was another notable event recently. Warren Buffett turned 89 on August 30th. Happy birthday, Warren. Buffett is, of course, an influential presence here in Omaha, where CLS is based. So he's had a significant impact on shaping the investment philosophies of many of our portfolio managers. But Berkshire Hathaway has been lagging the markets lately. And I think it's worth asking whether Buffett's success has peaked. Rusty? Uh, it's a great question. It's a fun topic, too. So Warren Buffett is known to be a value investor. He's actually a quality investor, too. But And it should be no surprise given how much value has lagged in recent years that Berkshire Hathaway, the, the company that he runs, has basically been lagging as well. Berkshire Hathaway has now lagged the U.S. market in the 10-year time frame, the 5-year time frame, the 3- and 1-year time frames, and has actually even recorded the last year to date when the market's up double digits. So it's been pretty remarkable. And you reviewed some of Berkshire's positionings um, to figure out where the lag is coming from. And it's certainly not the international versus domestic positioning that we have here at CLS. We're globally focused, and global has lag, so that kind of makes sense. But Berkshire is primarily domestic-based. So what is it that's causing this underperformance? Mm, yeah, you know, first of all, a couple things, but the international thing is interesting. I think right now, when anybody looks at two different investment strategies or uh, two different managers, two different funds, probably the biggest uh, determinant of performance, well, outside of how much is in the stock market, is whether it's domestic or international based. That is not the case here. What's happening with Berkshire Hathaway is two things. 
I think both of them are extremely informative and probably have a message for long-term investors as well. The first is cash. So Berkshire Hathaway has a bunch of cash, $120 billion in cash. But to put that in context, that's about over 30% of, of, of basically the stock holdings. Well, it's basically over half of the stock holdings. So it breaks out if it was a portfolio weight, it'd be over 30%. He will buy back stock, and of course, shareholders want to buy back stock. He will use that, but he's not. So why is he not? And now I'm putting words in his mouth. In fact, I don't even know if he'd say this, but I'm guessing he would, is that we do know from his past writings and what he's said, his favorite measure for seeing if the U.S. stock market is expensive or cheap is looking at the overall size of the U.S. stock market and comparing it to the overall economy, but looking at GDP. And right now, the U.S. market has never been more expensive. Right. So that would suggest that maybe he's not buying back stock because he's waiting for an opportunity to buy stuff back at a cheaper price. The second thing, which also is, is I think, very uh, notable, and again, probably has a message for long-term investors, is that Again, Berkshire Hathaway is basically an insurance company, so it's a financial stock, but he invests a lot of his float or cash into public companies. And while he has diversified, including into some technology names, he is still investing almost half of his portfolio in financial companies. The current environment does not favor financial stocks. For instance, the yield curve is inverted, which is typically not very good for the profitability of financial services firms. But by some measures, by looking at balance sheets, uh, there is an argument made by some that financials are perhaps the most attractive they've been since the late 1940s. And I just want to make a comment about that because mm -hmm. I think I've talked about here on the podcast before. When we talk about how we like international, it's like once in a generation lifetime, uh, once in a generation opportunity, perhaps uh, value versus growth, maybe once in a generation lifetime uh, opportunity. Small caps, nearly that as well. But this could be like a once in a lifetime opportunity for financials. And if financials, when they finally outperform, and if they do, and uh, that would suggest, of course, that value investing would do as well. So, um, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. So taking all of that into consideration, do you think that Buffett is going to be proven to be right again in the end? He is 89. The end will come soon. He probably has another 20 years left or so. But um, I mean, Buffett's a long-term investor and he's disciplined. And he usually does come out winning in the end. And unlike a lot of other money managers, he doesn't really care about the pressure when people are saying he's lost his touch or you know the quarterly numbers don't look great. It is remarkable that Berkshire Hathaway is trailing by almost 20% this year alone, uh, but he's had periods of underperformance before. The last 10 years, he's been trailing the S&P 500 by about 1% a year. Back in the nifty 50 craze in the 1970s, which has some parallel to now, he underperformed by 3% per year. During the dot-com boom, he trailed by more than 6% per year, and he had one year when the S&P was up huge and he was actually down. So. This has happened before, but in the end, he's always retained his reputation. So if he's right, I think this could be good news for CLS portfolios. It better be. So if the U.S. stocks are expensive, allocating, allocating more to international makes sense. If financials are on sale, value stocks are poised to outperform. And yes, we're overweight to both. Right. Um, okay, so there's another area that we're examining for value, as we do. Um, Jackson Lee, who's a quantitative PM here at CLS, wrote about this in his section of the Weekly Three. He wrote that while Treasury yields are low, there's been a lot of attention on the price impact on equity and bond markets, but there's some interesting movement in a less watched space, closed-end funds. Mark, what did Jackson find here? Yes, and Jackson does a great job on this, and he works with me on the active income portfolios, which have 
a and play a pivotal role in CLS's active income strategy, particularly the higher income strategies. So for the first time in two years, the closed-end fund market is trading at a lesser discount relative to its historic average. Um, treasury yields are low. Traditional asset class yields are low. CLS has to look elsewhere for target yields, and closed-end funds can and do provide that value. And in a lot of cases, because they're leveraged, it's in, in this in this environment, particularly to get a six percent yield, in a lot of ways, it's almost the only game in town. So the higher the active income st- yield strategy that we have, the more closed-end funds you're going to see in the portfolios. And we've had great performance over the last couple of years. Uh, they generate more income than the typical ETF counterparts. And as I said, they do use leverage to gain that higher exposure to the market. And they've traded at a discount relative to their NEV. Most of them do, not all of them. And since 2010, closed-end funds have traded at a 5% discount on average. And discounts, generally speaking, have an inverse relationship to the 10-year yield, which has contributed positively to active income so far this year, as well as the last couple of years. And you could see some active income uh, I'm sorry, some closed-end funds showing up in some of the other Advisor One funds that we have as well. Uh, there is a couple in, uh, I believe, growth and income as well as in flexible income. So we do some research on those and where um, we think it's appropriate, we will um, dabble there as well. All right. Well, let's turn now to some tweet-sized answers to popular questions. Rusty, yeah, you by have... the way, I love how you say answers. That's the <laughs> South African coming out, is isn't it? That is the South African economy. Yeah. Uh, okay, so Rusty, you had a list of these in your monthly review, and you did cover a lot of ground mm-hmm. with this uh, format. We've hit on a few in our discussion so far, but let's pull out a few more and run through them. Well, first, first of all, before you start doing these questions, yes, go I want to say this was a lot of fun. I thought this was pretty functional to do it, and the reason why I did it, because Mark does it so well in his writing, so I'm mm-hmm. basically copying his style. <laughs> Good you cover you. a lot of ground this way. <laughs> okay, so first question, how do the global financial markets in 2019 compare to prior years? Well, it, this year has been exceptional in so many ways. But you know what? Every year is exceptional in so many ways. But this year has had some pretty incredible moves in both bonds and gold. And the other thing is stocks are having another above-average year. And quite frankly, they're, they are poised for more gains going okay. to year-end. Cool. What's the role of gold in this market? Well, the role of gold, well, gold just hit a new all-time high against many currencies. And it's suggesting something's up. It's just acting like a traditional safe haven. But the surge has been really fast and strong. So I would think that, I mean, we're talking about a lot. We do have exposure to commodities, um, of course, but it's more of a diversified basket. We're thinking gold may be a long-term buy, but it's something to consider after it catches its breath. And what's in store for the U.S. dollar? Well, we do have a lot of good debates about the dollar within the within the organization. It kind of depends on time frames. But thinking about long term for the dollar is that classic currency valuations do suggest the dollar is expensive, but that has been the case for a while now. Uh, but you got to think, a president wants a lower dollar. The Fed is lowering rates. Inflation is starting to move a little bit higher. You add that all up it would suggest the dollar will be weaker in the years ahead. Maybe not the months ahead, but perhaps the years ahead. Here's another one. How do investors feel about U.S. stocks? Well, dis- well, it's probably not a surprise after August that investor sentiment is pretty darn bearish. Um, and But you know what? Investors have been pretty negative all year. The wall of worry is still in place. And there's a lot of ways to look at investor sentiment. And one of them is called the AAII Sentiment Survey. And what's cool about it is that it's been doing weekly data for years, so you can sort of test it. On the other hand, you could almost argue there are better sentiment indicators. But nonetheless, if we just look at AAII, 
Uh, sentiment is very negative, and studies would suggest we will see above average gains over the next one month, three months, six months, 12 months, and three years. So it bodes well for a strong finish to the year. Is September the worst month of the year for the U.S. stock I just market? said all these positive things, but September <laughs> is, in fact, the worst month. And again, if you look at data over the last 20 years, 50 years, 100 years, September has had the worst average returns, typically negative even at that, and the highest probability of losses. I think over the 20-year time frame, it came in second for probability of losses. But you know what? You add that all up, it's buying opportunity. Mm-hmm. What will be the catalyst for value stocks to finally start outperforming? Big question and an important question given the value tilt at CLS. And one answer could be like, uh, you know, what happened in um, – you know, the dot-com era or Nifty 50 is that the stocks that led the way, they got smacked down. And when they got smacked down, when they lost ground, uh, value stocks due to their uh, dividend support and lower valuations just lost a lot less. Now, that's not a fun way for for all of us because that means we're all losing money. Just value won't lose as much. Mm-hmm. But the better thing, which I think is a, a, a pretty good possibility, is that Inflation is starting to find its whole, uh, it's trying to find its footing a little bit. Inflation expectations and interest rates should rise, I think. And if they do, uh, value stocks tend to outperform in that environment. Okay, that wasn't quite tweet sized, but let's keep going. Oh, We've got a couple more here. You know what? I, I do speak longer than my tweets, <laughs> don't I? Dang it. So does Mark, by the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what, okay, here's a couple more. What is our view on market volatility? Well, I think in our role as investment managers, investment um, uh, and communicators of the markets, it's our default is always tell investors to expect more volatility. Volatility is really the price to invest in the markets. In the short term, it really is that time of year where volatility typically picks up. And in the long term, you should really expect volatility to move higher because it's simply been below average for years and it's due to revert just like everything reverts in the markets. Exactly. Okay, final question. How are emerging markets faring? Well, needless to say, it's lagged this year in recent. It's it's trailing at all time frames. Uh, momentum is clearly not a friend. Uh, corporate earnings hasn't necessarily uh, friendly either. But nonetheless, EM equities really is the only asset class right now priced for above average returns over the next five to ten years. And you know, just for example, EM trades at a forty percent discount to the U.S. and some markets trade at like a third or twenty five percent of what the U.S. valuations are. So it's on sale. Right. Okay, and before we move on, you have some questions and some news, right, about Mark I do Treffer have some here. news. So yeah. before we get to our interview, which I think is a good one, by the way, before we get to the interview, Robin, I think you and I are going to have some fun with mm-hmm. Mark. And the reason why is because, again, my role at CLS, I'm president and chief investment officer, but I'm basically dividing those responsibilities. And Mark, who's been chief investment strategist, is basically going to become the chief investment officer. Exciting. So let's pick on Mark to what that means. I should say, what what does that mean for me is I'm still going to be involved in CLS Investments. Um, I'm still on the investment committee. I'm still running funds, strategies. Um, You know, Mark and I talk all the time. I mean, I'm still going to be very involved. It's just that Mark's going to get elevated. And just before we, we hand the ball off to Mark again, Mark, it's a 30-year vet. He's actually the longest tenured portfolio manager at CLS Investments. Um, his resume is is awesome. Uh, he worked at Goldman Sachs. He's been a chief investment officer before. And uh, he has an opinion on anything related to the markets and sports, pop culture. And um, I can always count on him to debate whatever I'm saying. So <laughs> anyway, so let's pick on him now. Okay. First question for you, Mark. 
So as Rusty said, he's still yep. going to be a presence here um, at CLS. And But talk about um, any new directions, any new things that you want to implement in your new role. Well, I think Rusty and I, the, the things that we have similar first, I'll start with that, is we're both very competitive people and we play a win. I think when we look at investing, we are a little bit different. I'm probably more of an invest, a momentum player. Rusty, as he mentioned several times, is much more of a value uh, player in terms of looking at investments. So in all likelihood, I would expect some sort of tweaking of, of what we look at in terms of how we invest and in, what securities that we'll be buying. The security selection will be a little bit different. Um, the other thing I would just say, our personalities are just different. Uh, you know, even though Rusty did uh, go to school in Boston, is a little bit of an East Coaster. He is uh, a lot friendlier overall than, than I am, and uh, I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit rougher, a little bit more abrasive than. Uh, it's than just he direct. Is. So, a little, <laughs> yes, a little bit more direct, a little bit more no nonsense, and uh, so. But I think um, again, so far with the communication I've had with the guys, I think uh, sometimes change is, is good, and it could be a, a breath of fresh air. So I, I think uh, sometimes an infusion of, of, of new a new set of eyes and ears of Rusty, of course, is, is great to be here. And we've talked about how, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, it's even though Rusty is leaving this position, you think about it sometimes when, when, when somebody leaves, it's like, okay, they give you a two-week notice, and what they're doing is they're giving you a rundown of all the things that they have to do, and it becomes like a fire drill. The great thing we have here is Rusty is still here, so I'm going to have him to lean on, and I will need all of his help and guidance because I will make mistakes along the way, and uh, hopefully nothing too, uh, too dr- drastic, but uh, I am looking forward to it, and it's great to have him here. So, But again, I think just a... Just a a different slant in personalities, how we look at things a little bit differently. So that's my tweet on that one. A little, little winded, as Rusty would say, right? Now, before now, – yeah, Mark's tweets are a lot shorter than that. <laughs> the uh, Now, before, yeah. I, before I ask Mark a question, I just I just want to fill in some of this – or comment on some of the stuff he said. So first of all, Mark and I are both, uh, again, very competitive. We want to win. So And we have a very great working relationship as well. I, I do take offense saying breath of fresh air. Uh, I'm sure we could probably – Probably, you know, I might tell Kevin in the booth to actually retract that comment. No, just kidding. He can keep that. Um, It's just different air. It's more air. It's like now there are two fans in the room. Uh, I actually kind of describe this as that uh, Mark has become the head football coach. I mean, it's college football season, so everything comes back to the Cornhuskers, at least for me, not for Mark. But the uh, it's like he's now the head coach and I'm the athletic director, so I'm still very involved. Mark is clearly better than me talking about the markets. And this actually comes a little bit how we do look at the markets differently. I would say... I, since I'm an asset allocation guy, and so is Mark, but I'm making trades not every day. I mean, obviously, we're running cash, managing cash flows for our mutual funds, but it basically, we're not doing that many trades. But Mark, each and every day, is trading millions and millions of dollars of fixed income securities. So he's looking at the economic data even deeper and more closely and analyzing it more than I am. I want to I personally want to characterize it so much as momentum is that he's just on top of the economic data a little more and is a little more responsive to the shorter term volatility than I am. Um, and that is definitely a strength that he has. Now I'm going to ask him a question. Go for it. So, um, and it's kind of a, a, a take on a question I think I've asked Mark before on a podcast a long time ago. But Mark, in your opinion, now that you're responsible for the investment team, what do you think makes a good money manager? And a good analyst. 
Well, the first thing I want, and again, I feel like this is a bit of a cliche, but it's certainly someone that's going to be passionate about the markets. I don't necessarily need someone that went to the best school. I don't need someone that's had necessarily the best grades. But in terms of speaking to people, and you know, I can just go on prior hires that I've had in other roles before, that's, those are the things that I look for. Just in terms of having conversations, you can get a feel for somebody pretty quickly about how into the market they are. And I generally look to, because this is such a Again, intense market, and you need to really, I look at, have to stay on top of it. You, you really have to be into it. And it's meaning to me, it's not just a, you know, this isn't just a, a job to me. Whether I was working or not working, I'm going to watch the market day in, day out, weekend in, weekend out. I'm going to watch it. And I just want those people to have sort of a, a real interest in the market. In terms of an analyst, which is a, a, a little bit more granular, they certainly have to have that analytical skill the, you know, to be able to break things down, probably much more analytical than I would be on, on, on breaking these things down. Uh, and, I, and I definitely love the younger generation's way that they think. So um, just really just someone that's, that's a, in a lot of cases, an out-of-the-box thinker. So I'm really looking for someone that's going to challenge me, challenge the team, and come up with new suggestions um, from their way of thinking. Robin, you're next. So, okay, you've both talked about winning a lot. Um, Mark, talk about some of the other activities you, you do, because I know you do a lot of different things um, that have to do with winning and how are they related to your job currently and your job in the future? Yes, speaking of winning, I, I've been told once that almost every single activity that I do has a competitive slant to it. I play a lot of sports. Uh, I play poker, and like for example, poker to me, you have to read people. You have to, you know, so it's like reading the market. You have to try to get tea leaves. So reading, playing poker is is something that I find is very keen to investing. And I know there are investment firms on the street that actually look for people that play poker in terms of uh, and the relationship that they have in terms of the investment team that they have. That's so those are both competitive because they're both playing to win. And now a third thing which has become a, a new phenomenon in the last several years. I do it. My kids do it. I would say is fantasy sports, like fantasy football leagues. I mean, look what you're doing there. You have to, you have to come up with a roster. You have to, a lot of cases, there's a, there's a dollar value, and you have to decide who to play, um, where you think that there's value, one week to the next. It's like, like deciding whether you want to sell commodities, whether you want to be in the U.S. versus international, whether you're going to play this quarterback versus that quarterback. So I think there's a lot of relationship in terms of playing fantasy sports. And it so happens that this first week I am lined up against Rusty. So unfortunately for him, it's going to be his first loss of the season. Ah, so, right. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so that is something I would say fantasy sports and that is very big in my house. Is something, and 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 people play it for, play people play it for money. I mean, it's it's a really really competitive thing now, and I would say that putting together a a fantasy sports team and watching out for injuries and taking players off waiver wires, it's a lot like investing. You know what? On this fantasy football thing, I just got to say I don't really care if I win the league, but I want to beat Mark. That's it. <laughs> That's all I want to do. <laughs> So, um, all right. So, Mark, you got to wave the flag for CLS High, which you already have done, of course. But in your own words, what sets CLS apart from other asset management firms? Uh, there are several things I would say. I think our team is second to none. Uh, we have a very diverse group of people. So, like, Rusty and I are, like, if you want to call it the elder statesman where we've been around for 30-plus years. 
Then we have the, if you want to call it the, the core PM guys that are in their mid-30s. And then we have a bunch of younger guys that are in their 20s. Um, if you look at a lot of Wall Street firms now, I know the average age of Goldman Sachs employee, I believe, is under the age of 30. And ours is a little bit more experienced than that, and ours is well over the age of 30. And we have three separate generations of people that I think all make great contributions and have great discussions into the team. And then the other thing I would say is how our portfolios look different than other ones. We're not looking to run conventional portfolios, uh, as Rusty has told me plenty of times, you know, in terms of thinking outside the box, which I try to do, try to do more of in terms of looking at whether it's smaller portfolios, other ones in terms of securities that maybe are not in the run of the mill ones, not just, you know, buying things because we're not looking to just be like running like benchmark portfolios. We're going to be different in terms of the security selection that we have in our portfolios. And I think nobody does a better job really taking a granular look inside the ETF themselves and what those securities hold and how they would be impacted by markets going up or down. All right. Well, a final question for you, Mark. Um, obviously, yep. this is a new well, position. I got one for him, too, after that. Okay. okay. Second to final question for you, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> obviously, this is a new position, but what are some of the challenges that you're seeing um, that you might be facing already? Well, in essence, before this, if you want to call it, I was, uh, let's call it a a quarterback of certain portfolios that I'm running. And as Rusty pointed out correctly, now, now I've become like a, like a head coach. And right now, I guess I'm uh, like Rusty, I'm not going to be giving up any of the portfolios that I'm on. So like now I'll refer to myself as like a player coach. So I think now what you, what you have to do is I have to take much more into consideration the, the needs and um, of the team members and what they're actually looking at. So trying to relieve Rusty of some of those duties, which I probably didn't have an appreciation for, which I've already seen just in a few days of just, just personal. When I say personal, I mean just needs for to get their jobs done and things to make them more effective in their day-to-day um, going about whatever they need to do. So I think that that's really the biggest thing so far. So, and a lot of that, quite frankly, is, is a time suck, but it's one that's really necessary to keep uh, the team happy. And I'm trying to, to take on that responsibility, one where, one, as I said, I probably didn't see before, like if I was just playing quarterback, all my job is to do is to get, you know, get the ball down the field and get into the end zone. But now I have to make sure that, you know, our all the positions lined up correctly. Do we have enough people on the offensive line, or do we do we have injuries? Do we have enough players on the team? Do we do we need more? Where are we where are we short? Where where should we move resources around? All of those types of things. As I, as again, as I as I delve into this, and as Rusty mentioned, I've had prior experience doing this. Certainly not at CLS. So those types of things. Uh, are things that are familiar to me, but it's been a while since I've done it. So uh, I'm catching up to speed uh, again here at CLS. I am very excited about it, and uh, it has been a very, very busy last, let's call it 72 hours or so, even with all the weekends. So I am excited about it, but it's definitely uh, a challenge. And as I said, taking into account all the needs and considerations, not just that I need, but also for the members of the team. Oh, heck, I don't have another question. With the close <laughs> like that, hey, I just one thing I want to say in terms of my role again, the I'm still going to be doing client events, and I'll still be writing commentary and doing weekly meetings with the team and videos and podcasts, so I'll still be involved as well. It's just that at Mark, it's, he's, Mark's just driving a lot of that stuff now. So right. anyway, thanks, Mark. Thanks yeah. for letting us haze you. I don't think we hazed him very well, though. No, we he's, didn't really ask yeah. him anything that unexpected. Next time. Next time. We got time. Yeah. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this portion of the podcast. Hey, Mark, thanks for being on the show today and good luck. 
Thank you. Thanks, guys. Take care. So next up is Rusty's Q&A, and today he talks to Bruce Bischoff, who's the head of sales here at CLS. Um, And you highlighted, Bruce, in your monthly review. Um, We're very people-focused at CLS as part of our identity. Why did you want to spotlight Bruce? Well, because Bruce is a lot bigger than me, and if I didn't do it, (laughs) no, I'm just kidding. Um, No, no, seriously, Bruce deserves credit for a couple different, well, for a lot of things, but a couple things I want to point out. First of all, from a business perspective, CLS Investments is really having a great year. Uh, our portfolios have a good absolute returns. Uh, sales are solid, and asset retention rates are pretty high, all things considered. Uh, actually, they're they're great. But I think these last two points are pretty significant because just think about the backdrop. First of all, investor sentiment's been pretty negative and cautious, so a lot of money's actually flowed out of the industry. CLS, we're a global manager. That's not really been a hot seller. We're an active manager. That hasn't been a hot seller either. And as we've often talked about, we're overweight some areas which haven't performed well this year, such as international and value. Despite all that, we've hit our sales goals each and every month. And again, uh, in terms of redemption rates, which is kind of like the ultimate client satisfaction number, they're almost half of what the conventional industry averages are. So it, it takes a team. I mean, everybody is involved in this. It's because trading's doing a good job, uh, client service is doing a good job, new accounts are doing a good job, uh, marketing is doing a good job, but sales is really important. And Bruce is really a great manager. You can see it in the numbers. And Bruce has four key tenants to managing teams. He'll talk about this in the upcoming podcast or interview. Uh, work hard is number one. Uh, be accountable, number two have fun, and then reward the best performers. And bottom line, his approach his approach works, and it definitely shows in the numbers. All right, well, cool. Let's take a listen. Today's guest on CLS's The Wang Machine is Executive Vice President of CLS and Head of Sales, Bruce Bischoff. Bruce, welcome. Rusty, how you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, you know, I, I can't remember the last time you were on. It was a while ago, but we needed to have you back. Well, and I think you probably run out of people, so you brought me back. <laughs> What you talking about? I got all <laughs> kinds of people, but I wanted to have you on. So, basically, I think this is going to be more of a philosophical segment, and because you're a big culture guy, and you have a lot of great thoughts, and I think it it's a great way to talk about CLS and some of the things we're doing here. But so, first of all, you've been here now for seven years, and during that time, CLS has smashed all sorts of sales records. Tell us about some of those accomplishments over the years. You know, I think when you t- when you talk about sales records, you know, and I, I think about that aspect of it. Um, you know, when I came on board, we had a, we were doing about five hundred million in sales a year, give or take some. Over the last several years, we've built it up to where now we're doing anywhere from one to one point five billion a year, which is great. I, I still, you know, big accomplishment crossing a billion. That felt really good. Yeah, uh, it felt really good to celebrate with people, um, and I think. When, you really, when I really think about the accomplishments, I really didn't f- prepare much to t- think about the accomplishments that I've made over the last seven years. But what I really think about is when I see people succeed. To me, more than crossing a billion, yeah. more than doing 1.5 billion in a year in new assets, it's seeing people succeed and seeing people get promoted. Yeah. If I think about the people who have been on my teams um, people have been promoted to Orion. People have been promoted to the portfolio management team. People have been promoted to other departments. When Don and I were running the service team, mm-hmm. um, to watch people that were in the infancy of their career and in the infancy of service, and now they're running our service department and the development and 
to me, I think those are really the accomplishments. There are, you know, as a sales guy, you get excited about, you know, being 150% a goal. And, and uh, you know, you got that number always on your head that you're trying to achieve. But to me, when you set things up right and you see people succeed and people get promoted, I mean, I was with a, a firm years ago, and the way they man they evaluate their managers and rank their managers is how many people they got promoted. Yeah. And so I think yeah. that that is like how how I measure success. You know, it's sort of like the the college football coaches or any coach that talks about if their players are getting better, the wins and losses take care of themselves. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So more specifically, what are some of the techniques? that you've used to help? You know, and this is probably where we've talked in the past. I've kind of got four things that are really important in my culture. Yeah. The first one is working hard. Yeah. I expect people to work hard. If we're at work, we might as well make the best of our time. Let's work hard. The second one is accountability. When we find out what we need to do, where we need to go, how we need to get there, we need to be accountable to those things that we're doing to get there. We want to have fun while we're doing it. And so I think over the last seven years, I think one thing I can say is our teams have enjoyed each other and we've had fun doing it and uh, we've become a little bit of a family. Um, and then the last thing I do, and this is really the salesy part, is I only talk about my top people. I only talk about the successes. I only talk about the people that are getting it done. Yeah. And so when I'm uh, sending out my monthly quota tenant report of those guys that are smashing it, those guys that are on top, those guys that are exceeding their goals, that's who I'm talking about. Yeah. That's who I'm praising. That's who I'm celebrating with. That's who at the end of the year I'm taking with me on my trips and we have a great time. So I think the other thing that really helps is employees need to know expectations. Um, and that's, that's kind of where that accountability piece comes in. Yeah. If employees don't know the expectations, you're not going to succeed. And I think you've really failed if you're in a discussion with an employee and they're surprised on what your expectations are. So that's what you do with the good people. How do you, what do you do with the weak performers, the consistently weak performers? Well, I think you have to either um, give them a chance to improve and coach them, yeah. spend some time with them, and if they don't improve, you gotta move on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and actually, um, a lot, that seems kind of mean, yeah. but sometimes where you've helped employees move on, so to speak, um, it's actually best for them. They it's not a good fit for them, right? They find so. something that's, that they're happier doing and, and they're more successful doing. It's a it's a win-win sure. a lot of times you can get rid of yeah. somebody like that. Well, that's kind of harsh saying get rid of, but yeah. it is a win-win because it's probably not a right fit. So when they move on, it's they get a better situation and it's, it's better for the existing yeah. team. Yeah. All right, so you're a big culture guy. You kind of just mentioned that already, but and people love working for you, and they do produce at high levels. So how do you manage for culture? And I think, is that something you can explicitly manage for? Is it just about hiring the right people, or is it both? Nature versus nurture sort of thing. Um, I think it's got to be both. Um, if you think about um, horse racing, if you have a racehorse, or maybe not a racehorse, you have a horse, and they're not fit to be horse racing, being a, a racehorse, even if you put them in the best environment, feed them the best food, put them on the best track, have the best trainer, they're still not gonna win any races, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, you put them in that environment, they're probably gonna do better than what they would do, yeah. not being in that environment. But if you hire, if you, if you have a great racehorse or someone that's got the pedigree, 
or that seems to have the right skills, not necessarily the skill set, but the right mindset and the right um, way about themselves to be that great racehorse. And then you put them with those other things, you know, the great training, a great culture, a culture that praises success, all that type of thing, then I think it comes together nicely. Gosh. Without that, it yeah. doesn't. And yeah. you ever heard that joke of how do you make a small fortune in horse racing? Uh, uh, Start with a large fortune. Yep, so. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah. You always have the good stories. I guess that's why I'm on the PM side is like I don't have the stories. I can show you numbers, though. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. Hey, uh, so, okay, uh, getting philo- philosophical again here. So getting back to sales – and and really, there are multiple teams and multiple players on a sales team. They all have to work together. But kind of breaking it out, what is sort of the management philosophy when it comes to managing external salespeople and internal salespeople? How are they different, and how do you manage them differently, and what are the expectations, and how do they how do you differ between the two? Yeah, I don't honestly, I don't know if I see a difference. Okay. I think yep. um, in this culture here. The key to, to both of them winning is teamwork. Um, you know, you can, in a, on a basketball team, you've got point guards and you've got centers and you've got those type of things. But for the team to win, they've, they've both got to know their roles and both be happy doing their roles and both be good at doing their roles. Yeah. And so although I think the internal role and the external role are completely different. You know, the external is out driving his car 80 miles an hour, phone calls coming in, he doesn't have good access to data, doesn't have good access to information, he's rushing to the next appointment, he's probably missed lunch. Um, If he was lucky, he may have grabbed a candy bar at a convenience store while he was filling up with gas, where the internal is sitting back at his desk with this completely controlled environment, all this information at his fingertips. The advisor is much easier to get a hold of the internal than the wholesaler. So I think the first thing, you know, with those guys is um, your helping them to make sure they fit in, in the role that they've got, but know that they're on a team yep. of equals. And I think that's one thing we've done here at CLS is, um, you know, the internal is not an appointment scheduler. It's not an administrative duty. Um, there's sometimes where advisors actually respond better to an internal, and the internal actually sells more than the wholesaler. Yeah. And so I think as long as they know their roles, as long as they know – um, that they're working as a team. You know, they want to make sure the right hand knows what the left hand is doing. Uh, one thing we've done here at CLS is we've stressed um, communication yep. and expectations. A lot of times when we put a new wholesaler and internal together, we have them sit down and list ex- expectations of each other. And then they decide, are these expectations the right expectations of each other? And then they agree on them. And then yep. we move forward with that. But I think it's really um, communication, daily communication. We make sure that our our wholesaler internal teams each week are um, having weekly meetings where they're talking about, hey, what happened last week? What can we do better than what we did last week? And yeah. what do we do, need to do on follow-up from last week? And what's going on the next two weeks so we can plan ahead and be on the same page? Yeah. Hey, so this is probably kind of falls in the same group, but another sort of division with our firm and many other firms is outside of sales, there's sort of the, the client service function. How, how does that differ in your opinion? Or is it um, all just an extension of the same thing? I actually, I actually think client service is the most important thing. Yeah. I think it's easier to lose business through poor client service than it is through anything else. And with that being said, 
I think everybody needs to understand we're all client service. It's not just, we do have a client service department, customer service department, that they're titled customer service. But I also think that the customer doesn't look at just them as customer service. They look at every interaction they have because they're the customer as customer service. So it doesn't matter if we're on the sales team or we're on the customer service team, if we're not following up, if we're not you know, keeping from dropping the ball, if we're providing great customer service, um, the PM team as well. We, we use the PM team and the PM team is so great um, in dealing with our customers yeah. that it's all customer service. So even though we look at customer service as a department, I think the client actually looks at customer or client service as the whole company, any, any interaction they have with the company. And so I think no matter who you are, it's got to be something that's focused. And if any of us let down, um, it hurts our business. Hey, everybody's in sales. Exactly. Hey, you know, one thing I didn't, I, I didn't ask you before, but, you know, everybody's in sales. But do you have – somebody is, like, new to just working or to sales or outside of sales. Do you have any recommendations for them in terms of what they – how they could get better at sales and marketing themselves? And you know, one thing I, I brought up the other day in a meeting I was in with some new guys is um, I read this book years ago called um, Becoming the Obvious Choice. And so in college football or no matter what it, what it, whatever it is, if you want to play at that next level, you got to play like you're at that level at the level you're currently at. And so, so for instance, in high school football, if you want to play college football, you got to be that person that's playing like a college football player at the high school level. And in business and in, in work and in job interviews, you can't show up for a job interview and they ask you about an experience you've had where you've stood out or an experience you've had where you've learned from and you make it up on the fly, you've got to have that experience before that job interview, and you've got to play at that next level. And so in becoming the obvious choice, whether it be an internal and you want to be a wholesaler, you've got to play like you're a wholesaler. You've got to play at a, at a different level. If you're um, wanting to be a portfolio manager and you're at some place in the company, you've got to be playing like that at your current position so when it gets time to be put in the game, you already know how to play that position. Yeah. So, you know, um, I'm just I'm finishing a book right now, which is great. It's uh, I can't remember the title of it, but it's about the Nebraska volleyball coach John Cook and his whole philosophy on coaching and running yeah. teams. It is way better than I thought it would be. That's pretty cool. All right. So all this is evidently working because. As I like to say, what you're doing on your side with sales and inside sales and client service and all that, it is working because think about the industry this year. The industry this year has been pretty tough. Money's been flowing out, particularly for active managers. CLS is a global manager. It hasn't been a great year to be a global manager, and we are underperforming our benchmarks this year due to our value tilt. So those are three significant headwinds. But again, you and your team have actually exceeded sales goals each and every month, and are uh, redemption rates, money actually coming out, is near half the industry average. I mean, that's just amazing given the headwinds because a lot of people are really struggling out there. Hey, so you know what? All this really comes down to, it's not really like me. It's like sometimes I get credit for stuff, but it's really not about us. It's about our right-hand person, and yeah. you have like the best right-hand person in the firm, and in uh, Don Bathhouse. So she actually really may be the MVP of CLS. What makes Don Don? 
You know, I think when I think about Dawn, um, I think what makes Dawn about Dawn is she cares for people. Yeah. Um, every, the, the, within the organization, they call her Mama Dawn. Yeah. Because she cares for the people that work for her and she cares for the people that even don't work for her. But I think that is even more noticeable with clients and with advisors. Um, she has these all these uncoachable attributes. You know, like we talked about race uh, horses yeah, yeah. earlier. She's got these attributes that are that are bred within her, that um, is re- are really great. And and people people see that and people want to work for her. And people, um, you know, she doesn't drop the ball on things when she is working with advisors. Um, she's the first in to the office usually, and quite often she's the last out. Yeah. Um, and she's got she's busy at home. She's got kids in school and all that type of thing. Um, you know, I think um, th- think about Dawn. Um, she's probably the best work relationship I've ever had with anyone. Yeah. Ever, I'm working hand in hand with her, and I'm sure that my successes and accomplishments are more because of Dawn than Dawn's ex- successes and accomplishments uh-huh. are about me. So yeah. I really think that um, that. She really just she's she's phenomenal. Yeah, and I don't know what else to say other than we do make a really great team. I've never worked so well with anybody, so easy to work with, um, and uh, she, she does things for me that I don't ask her to do for me. So she uh, she always has joy in her heart. You can tell no matter what kind of the day is like, and um, she is phenomenal for the work environment. She's phenomenal for clients, investors. So I agree. Heck I agree. yeah! Any closing words? Uh, I. I'm always looking forward to the opportunities here at CLS and Orion. Yeah. Um, I love uh, working here at the company and the opportunities and the challenges. I, I think here, the great thing at working for Orion and working for CLS, FTJ Fund Choice, those type of things, are that um, we don't have a, we're not perfect, um, but the great thing is we're not complacent. And so when we find our weaknesses, we find our places we can improve, we're always looking at making the company better and making it a better uh, resource for advisors. So looking forward to the next several years with Orion and um, onward and upward. Heck yeah. Love selling. I love it. Well, thanks, Bruce. Thanks, Rusty. Good stuff. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Rusty, take us out with your final thoughts. Well, first of all, I thought that was an awesome interview. I loved how Bruce talked about Don, who's so instrumental to the team as well. And other than that, stay balanced and stay the course. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening to CLS is the Weighing Machine, and thank you for your time and trust in CLS Investments. CLS is the Weighing Machine is hosted by Rusty Vanneman, Chief Investment Officer at CLS Investments, and me, Robin Murray, freelance writer and editor. If you have questions or feedback about our podcast today, please send us a note at rusty.vanneman at clsinvest.com.